Hello and welcome to Beyond Radio Podcasts. This is an episode in our series The Veteran's Story, produced in conjunction with Morecambe Football Club Community Sports and the First Light Trust. In this series, local veterans recount their experiences of serving in the armed forces and life since leaving. The views expressed here are of the individual contributor. This is The Veteran's Story. My name's Steve Lowne and for the past 30 years I've lived here in Morecambe. I'm originally from Leicester and I married a girl from Manchester and we moved here uh, for work mainly, um, not long after I'd come out of the, well, sometime after the army and uh, we've been here ever since. Um, I was in the regular army for eight years, uh, two years as a boy soldier, I joined at 15 and uh, six years in the battalion. And then when I came out, I served a further five years with the Territorial Army in Manchester before we moved here. I served in the Coldstream Guards that I joined in 1972, uh, as I say, as a boy soldier straight from school at the age of 15. My grandfather was ex-army and I did originally want to join Armoured Corps because that's what he was in. At the time of recruiting, there was a, a lack of uh, infantry soldiers, but the Armoured Corps, and I didn't quite score high enough on aptitude tests, um, I'm dyslexic and they wanted higher grades in English and maths um, but the guards were quite low down, all regiments and the guards were quite low down and they did a huge guards and recruiting um, at the intake for the Junior Leaders Regiment in 72 was um, the largest they'd had since the, um, the end of the Second World War uh, and I was, I was quite honoured to be selected to join the guards um, you know, living in Leicester I had a choice of working in a shoe factory um, uh, an engineering factory or on a farm and none of those really appealed to me and I wanted to get out and see the world didn't have really good close family ties um, so yes so I went and, and did my little bit training extremely hard um, guards regiments are expected to train to a higher standard the guards are also dual re- role regiments so we have the ceremonial side which is hard work in itself. The drill has to be spot on and um, there's a lot of uh, pride within the drill side of it for public duties. And the other side is we are a combat regiment. The Coastroom Guards are the longest continuous serving regiment in the British Army. We were part of Oliver Cromwell's new model army at the beginning and that was the basis of the modern army as we know it today. So there's a lot of uh, expectation on not just my regiment, but all the Brigade of Guards. Um, we've served in every um, conflict that the British Army's ever been involved in since the forming of the New Model Army. So, um, yes, there was a lot put on us very quickly. Some of the training exercises we did um, were at the Guards Depot, as it was then, which is in Purbright. Um, we also went to uh, battle training areas to hone the skills that you're taught. And yeah, it's, it's a very physical um, activity and there was a couple of the lads that were joined up with me that didn't manage to go through it and, and they left of their own accord um, because they found it too tough. And I'm a little bit determined, I didn't want to give up. I think there was occasions, and I don't know any young trainee soldier that doesn't think, is this the right move for me, um, especially as you've deprived of sleep. 
you don't know when your next meal is coming because the, the training the NCOs and officers have got you out running around. There is a notorious part of the guards depot which is known as the Sand Hill, and it's extremely it's a 200 meter high hill made of sand, and in your full kit you're running up and down it continuously. And the instructors are shouting out, one more for the regiment, one more for the Queen, one more for the brigade, and so on and so on. And when you get back to barracks and you're extremely exhausted and you're thinking to yourself, is this worthwhile? I'm here to say, yes, it is. For me, it was. It was extremely worthwhile. I enjoyed my time in the, in the battalion. I enjoyed my time in the regiment. I've done things and seen things that I can say that only a few other people that I've met have, have done. But I would be lying if I said that at some point it hadn't crossed my mind, was I doing the right thing? But the training is all worthwhile because when you come to do active service, I served twice in Northern Ireland. Both the times it was in West Belfast. It wasn't a particularly nice period of time to be. Our first tour was in 1975. Uh, we were stationed at a place called uh, White Rock in West Belfast and the second time was at a place called Turf Lodge and both the notorious areas there will be lots and lots of ex-servicemen who have been to exactly the same places and know exactly the kind of thing that I and the rest of my regiment have gone through. In the 70s there was huge amounts of trouble and but your training kicks in. Now the first time I went I was just turned 18. I was 18 in July I went out there in November. Um, there is a, a system where the old soldiers look after the younger soldiers. So some of the guys that I was serving with had been in Derry in 69. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, um, it's something that you, you learn that you can rely on people. Uh, but the other, on the opposite foot, you've got to show that they can rely on you as well. And again, that's where all the training comes in. That's where all the miserable runs and going over assault courses and, and the physical training as well as the weapons training and everything like that that's where it all it all comes to a culmination then one of the worst experiences was hunger strikers died and um, the local community were um, protesting because he wasn't in he wasn't in Northern Ireland a lot of people remember the hunger strikers in Ireland that died he was in actually in, in Durham prison I think and when you are the 60 of soldiers and they're facing an estimated crowd of two two and a half thousand and they're all angry and they're baying for blood yes they're uh, you know extremely frightening anybody who wasn't frightened is lying either lying or mad um, yeah so there was that we got shot at on a number of occasions we were quite fortunate the first time I went even though we did have these incidents it wasn't as bad as some other regiments but the the terrorist organizations the IRA at the time were very observant of who they were dealing with there are instances of regiments like the parachute regiment who would be hounded constantly um, because of their reputation other regiments they would get it but not quite as bad and I think it's how the, the officers, NCOs and the men deal with what's happening at the time um, and ha what your response is to it. And of course, I was just a very young soldier. I'm just doing as I'm told. 
um, but yeah there was a few times that we were getting it was getting pretty close and the bad part of that is that you can't forget it when you come back um, so when I came home on leave um, the first time I'd gone home on leave I was at my father's at Leicester and um, all I was doing was drinking like, huge amounts of alcohol trying to forget what we were going through you get four days and then you sent back again and some of those memories that haunt me now and it took a long time after I left the army for me to be able to settle down my wife has accepted the fact that I can be difficult to live with at times I'm not so bad now but my first wife we split up she couldn't deal with it and yeah and I don't know any uh, servicemen that have gone through situations like that that aren't affected by it. So, yeah, there, were, there was rioting and, and bombs. I used to search for, um, be on the search teams. Each battalion has its own local search team, or each company does. And on intelligence, we, we would go and search people's properties and we'd find, and we found all sorts, ammunition, um, explosives. Explosives are the worst. They make their own. Um, and looking for it and finding it, um, you get very, very nervous. Um, but then you see, we've always got the backup. When we found anything like that, we get hold of the people, uh, army regiments that are, deal with that. So um, EOD, um, Explosive Ordnance, um, is done with by the Royal Engineers. Royal Engineers have their own department, bomb disposal teams, and they would come and take over from us. But at the time, when you're searching an empty property that possibly could be booby-trapped and you've come across a large quantity of explosives, um, yeah, you do you do start thinking to yourself, you know, I wish I wasn't here, I wish I was somewhere else. Yeah. But on the positive side, I did um, Trooping the Colour twice, uh, street lining for um, dignitaries, Queen's Silver Jubilee Parade, I was on parade then. So that side of it, um, which is what most people associate with guards regiments. That was, you know, I've got photographs of me in my tunic, and, and yeah. Yeah, so um, that's the good side that you know you, you can fall back on and say I did this. You know, yeah. we were stationed in Chelsea Barracks, which is now gone in London, from 75, 75, 76. So we did Troop in the Colour then. Um, I did Street Lining the first time. Younger soldiers. A sort of eased into this because it's a big occasion. Troop the colour the second time, we did what's known as number three guard. Um, so you've got the number one guard, they troop the colour, number two guard. And then number three guard at the time, there was a special formation that we had to do because we used to open up for the carriages to come through. So the Queen Mother would come through in her carriage. and uh, um, But the, Her Majesty was still riding um, Burmese horse at the time. And it wasn't until a couple of years after that that she came to a point where I think it was more the security services and yes mm. one of the members of the crowd as you turning off the mall into horse guards um, he was in the crowd and he sort of lunged forward and fired a, a starting pistol he was also well and truly belted by a Scots guard who was doing the um, street line at the time because of the political climate at that time um, Margaret Thatcher and her defence cuts as well as minor strikes and everything like that um, rejoining the army was nearly impossible um, until of course the Falklands War in 82 
Um, but my regiment didn't go. Scots Guards went and the Welsh Guards went, and um, because we all know what happened there, as well as the, the Perrers and the, and the Gurkhas. And I could possibly have got back in in 82, but in 82 I'd found employment that I was sort of capable of dealing with. Um, I'd started lorry driving, and the sort of being out on the road, constantly keeping my mind active, and also it got me off the drink, so because I was drinking quite heavily at that time. I joined the Territorial Army, um, so I joined the Queen's Lancashire Regiment, um, the 5th Battalion in Manchester, and um, I spent five years with them. It was It's not quite the same, weekend warriors and things like that, but a lot of the Territorial soldiers are very dedicated, and more recently, Territorial units have been backing up service units I know a couple of the guys that have been to uh, Iraq and, and uh, Kuwait, um, you know, so yeah, it's getting more of, it used to be a bit of a joke, the territorials, but a lot of the old soldiers, it went, what's known as on the colours, so they would, after they'd um, finished their regular service, they would go into the colours, like the reserves, and that's what it was, a bit like Dad's Army, home, home Guard type of thing. But I think the powers that be recognised that it was a good idea to get these people who were volunteering their own you know they got they didn't get a, a huge amount of wage for it um it mainly most of it was voluntary um, so if they're going to volunteer the time let's train them up and get them the the proper equipment so um and i became um, uh, a signals corporal um dealing with the signals unit for the, the regiment um meeting people in civilian life and and a few of them ex-military and a lot of them not and it's only because we moved that I stopped doing Territorial Army. Um, and then, having a large family, I concentrated on working. And we've, I've got quite a large I've got six children and nine grandchildren, so I worked huge hours. The work also helped my mental health. That was beneficial for me in one way, keeping busy. Um, it's when you're sitting around idle hands, yeah. Um, even though we sort of mention I was in this place and I was in that place and I've mm. done this and I've done that and the other guys will say the same thing it's more the fact that um, ex-military people have a certain outlook on, on life because of the experiences they've had and we all sort of recognise it didn't matter which era that, that they're from I mean there's guys in there um, from the Cold War and there's guys in there from Korea we were saying before, there's no World War Two veterans here anymore. But yeah, it, I can come and say things to ex-servicemen and they get it, whereas civilians wouldn't get it. I was doing a training course once I was in the territorial at a place called Warminster, which is a big training area for the army. And I was doing signals and two of the lads on the course were Royal Irish Rangers. And we were talking about Northern Ireland and the problems in Northern Ireland and we have a very black humour and one of the Irish rangers said to me oh here's a good one for you, you'll get this throw well, throw shell he's referring to petrol bombing I got it, I thought it was highly amusing nobody else got it because there weren't regulars, um, it's that kind of thing so I can say things to guys here and it's important to be able to get people to recognise and also I can recognise that family military family thing and we have a great rivalry between the services, whereas, you know, we take the mickey out of the Marines and the Navy and 
but some of the jobs that some of them Navy guys done, I served on board a, a, a ship for a month in, a, in an exercise. I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't do that permanently. And being a submariner, not a Catanel's chance. I couldn't go in a tin can and stay underwater for how many months or whatever to do it. But some of them said, well, we wouldn't like to be running around in a dirty, muddy field, and which is what we did. It's hugely important that um, there are places for veterans to go. When I first started coming here about six months ago, I think that we counted 16 people. Now, as you've seen there, it's nearly 40, and it's getting better, and we're getting more recognition and more financial support as well, because there are... I think somebody said there's something like 1,500 military veterans within this local area, and there's only 40 of us turning up here. There's a lot more that are out there that need the support and don't know it's there. Even if it's just turning up once a month, I'm gonna cup of coffee and a bacon sandwich and natter rubbish to some guys that have done the same thing. That's extremely important. Thank you for listening to The Veteran's Story. You can subscribe to the podcasts and visit the Beyond Radio podcast page at www.beyondradio.co.uk forward slash podcasts to hear further veteran stories as they are released. For information on how the First Light Trust is helping local veterans, visit www.firstlighttrust.co.uk Beyond Radio